in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. It's interesting that uh, in, if you read Luther or Calvin and their commentaries on the Psalms, they both refer to these first two chapters of the Psalms as the introduction to the whole Psalter. In fact, in many ways, uh, Psalms 1 and 2 have often been read together. But this evening, we'll give attention to the second Psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage? seems to be a dark time for Israel as we look at this particular psalm. The historical circumstances are not specified, but the action is clear. The nations have assembled together against the people of God. For those of you who are fans of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this is kind of like the scene of Rohan at Helm's Deep. Israel has been hemmed in by the forces of darkness. The situation seems dire. Where is salvation to be found? And what we find in this particular psalm is that the psalmist quickly causes us to see this particular battle from a heavenly perspective, one that turns the entire situation on its head, and in doing so, it gives us a vision for the whole course of human history. I'd like us to examine this particular psalm from the the vantage point of four distinct speakers and four distinct recipients of that speech. If you look uh, in verses 1 to 3, you'll see that the psalmist is addressing himself. He's asking a particular question. Why is it that the nations are raging? And then in verses 4 to 6, the Lord himself addresses the nations. In verses 7 to 9, the Lord speaks, but now he speaks not to the nations, but to his anointed king, the king of Israel. And then finally, in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist speaks again this time to the nation. So if you notice that distinct movement, this flow, it's got a chorus of four different speakers, or at least uh, two, speak, two speeches uh, addressed to four different audiences. So first, we'll consider this first speech here given in verses one to three. It's rather fascinating to read the first two psalms in tandem together. There's actually evidence to suggest that the, these two psalms were at one point sung together as a single psalm. Um, Don't have time to get into all that this evening, but just to point out one particular instance. So you recall a few weeks ago when we were working our way through Psalm 1, we found that the righteous man is the one who delights in the Torah of the Lord, the one who delights in the instruction of Yahweh. 
And Psalm 1 tells us that to meditate on anything else is but pure vanity. Uh, The net result of pursuing other ends, of pursuing other goods, is that you become nothing more than dust in the wind. You're kind of a tumbleweed rolling along the prairie. Well, this opening question that the psalmist gives, he asks that question, why is it the nations are raging? And yet he follows it up with another question. Why do they plot in vain is how the ESV puts it. Quite literally, the Hebrew reads, why do they meditate on vanity? In other words, whereas the righteous man of Psalm 1 is meditating on the Torah or the instruction of the Lord, the wicked kings of the earth are meditating not on the Lord's instruction, but they're meditating on vain and futile gestures, the overthrow of the Lord himself. The nations have assembled together. The uh, forces of darkness have mustered their armies into an axis of evil, a grand coalition in a mutiny against the Lord and against his anointed one. That word anointed one is a reference to Israel's king. You'll see it over and over again. The Hebrew word there for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word there is Christos or Christ. And so in the New Testament, for instance, when Jesus is referred to as the Christ, that is not his last name. Rather, it is a title, an honorific regarding his particular status as viewed by his followers. He is, in fact, the true king of the people of God. That the Messiah is the instrument of God's salvation. Elsewhere in the Psalms, the anointed one is depicted as the bearer of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. You think of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where this psalm uh, repeats various uh, words and themes and imagery where the Lord himself promises to David that I will set you on a throne and your son will sit on an everlasting throne. For you are my son. This day I've begotten you. As we'll see later on in this psalm. But we notice that the psalmist awakens the reader to the reality of the situation. Notice the intent of the forces of darkness to the nations as they have surrounded the the nation of Israel. What is their intent? What are they seeking to do? Verse 3. They say, Come, let us burst their bonds and cast off their fetters. Who are they speaking of? They're speaking of the bonds, the chains that they have been bound by the Lord himself. What is the implication here? The implication is that the forces of darkness have in fact already been subjugated. This is, this is kind of the grand twist in the psalm. Even as it begins with the forces of darkness have surrounded, now we're given a vision from the heights of heaven that, that there are nothing less or nothing more than just a bronco bucking under the bridle. They've already been subjugated. The nations are in, they're subject to Christ and now they're chafing under the rule of Christ. It's not that they fall outside the sovereignty of Christ. It's rather that they have chosen to rebel against it. They uh, are uh, prisoners seeking uh, to overthrow their captor. Well, this psalm is not the only psalm that contemplates the fate of the nations. You consider Psalm chapter 79 or Psalm 115. Uh, These other psalms consider the future of the Gentiles, the Goyim, the, the Gentiles. 
Whereas these other psalms will contemplate various other facets of, um, of the nations. For instance, we find that in other chapters, uh, the consideration is given to the groans of God's people as they sit under the oppressive forces of darkness. Or later in Psalm 115, there's that contrast between the idols of bronze and silver that the nations worship versus the one true and living God of Israel. Yet here in Psalm 2, there's a contemplation of the Lord's own response to the nations. And here we find that second speech begin. How does the Lord respond uh, to these forces gathering around the nation of Israel? What does he do? He laughs. He derides, quite literally the word means, to stammer in, in somebody's face. It's to get right in the face of your opponent. Go, nee, 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 nee. That's exactly what the Lord is doing to his opponents. He's deriding them. Guys you, guys, you really think you're going to get away with this. And here it says that the Lord terrifies the nations with his speech. What is it about the Lord's speech that terrifies the nations? Verse 6. It is that he has established Christ on Zion's throne. It's a terrifying feature that the king of righteousness has been seated on a throne from which he will not be overthrown. And it terrifies the wicked tyrants of this age. In other words, to proclaim that the Messiah reigns is enough to set uh, the teeth, uh, their teeth on edge. You, know, you think of the, uh, uh, the state church of China, uh, in communist China, the state church known as the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. Um, I think many of us might be surprised that there is a state church of China, but then you have to ask, what are they allowed to preach? It might be best to ask, what are they not allowed to preach? And under this state church, preachers are not allowed to preach about the return of Christ. Why? Because to preach that Christ is one day returning is to admit by the communist regime, that there is a greater government yet to come. One who will one day trample them under their feet. See, what we find is the message of Christ's kingship is good news for those who are hemmed in by the enemy. But what is good news for the oppressed is in fact bad news for the oppressor. It is bad news for those who refuse to relinquish their power and authority, those who refuse to submit to the authority of the Son. It is bad news for the wicked, and so it terrifies them. And now yet there's another shift that we see take place, a third speech, where now the Lord himself addresses the anointed king of Israel. Here we're given a peek into the unique relationship between the Lord and his Messiah. Here the the curtain is drawn back, so to speak. See, this is what we would call a coronation psalm. This is likely a psalm that was sung upon the accession of uh, the Davidic king to the throne. You know, we have uh, an inauguration day once every four years where the president is now sworn into office. He occupies that office every four years. Well, of course, in ancient Israel, uh, you're not elected to office. Rather, it is by divine appointment through a particular lineage, the line of David. And of course, it is... Uh, a possession that the king holds for life. Of course, 
Each of those kings who sat on the throne died, and so their son would then sit on the throne, and so there would be another inauguration day, another coronation moment, and this would be a psalm that would encapsulate the great hope of the people of God that this king of Israel is, in fact, the Lord's special anointed one. Think again of the language that the Lord himself says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When that that covenant is established with David, the Lord says to David, I will be to you as a father and you shall be to me as a son. And so when the psalmist says here that the Lord has spoken to the anointed one, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That begotten language is speaking to the coronation of the king of Israel. As the anointed leader of God's people, the king of Israel is the great image bearer of the Lord. He is the representative of God on earth. And so any attack on the image bearer is an attack on the Lord himself. This is why you see in verse 2 that there's that conspiracy, not only against the Lord, but it's a conspiracy against the Lord and his anointed one. And yet the Lord makes this special decree, this special promise of his great love for his son. A particular vow that he makes to give his son an inheritance. I remember when my grandfather died when I was uh, in junior high school, my inheritance from my grandfather was his leather-bound Louis L'Amour collection. If you know who Louis L'Amour is, I think James would probably know who he is at least. Yeah, he's shaking his hand. He was a a famous uh, uh, Western author and somebody that my grandfather loved to read. And so when he passed, I got his collection of books. When my dad, uh, who is still alive, thankfully, but when he uh, keels over, my inheritance will be uh, his Colt 357 Python and one of his purple hearts. He got two. He said he got one for me and one for my brother. That's why he got wounded in Vietnam. So gracious to do that for us, to give us uh, those things. But here we find that Christ himself has a particular inheritance, not to, to, to suggest that the father himself dies, but the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you an inheritance. You name it, and it's yours. Just ask. And here we find what that promised inheritance is to be for the Son. What was once the possession of the kings of the earth has now become the exclusive property of the Son. What is it that the Son inherits? The nations. They're His. They're promised and vowed by the Lord to be His. It's not anything that any particular regime or government or tyrannical power is able to halt or supplant. The Lord has promised it, and that promise will stand firm forever, that the nations will be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no surprise, then, why the nations are so furious. Why do the nations rage? To claim that Christ is king is to claim that all those people who strive for power is simply a temporary possession. They will not be able to cling to it forever. But remember that these are not good kings that are being brought into view. These are wicked kings, the kings of the nations, men who meditate upon vanity, men who do not, like the righteous man of Psalm 1, meditate on the instruction of the Lord. They meditate on the overthrow of the Lord 
and his anointed one. And so their end is as chaff in the wind. Whereas the sun's rule and reign is the exact opposite. It is established forever. Here what is brought into view is the worldwide dominion of the sun. He who shall shatter the reign of the wicked kings of the earth. This is a repeated theme that we find not just throughout the Psalms, although we'll come to it time and time and time again. I'd say Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 in conjunction are among the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Think of Psalm 10. The Lord said to my Lord, you, uh, uh, what did he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies a footstool. Again, that kingship language. Thank you, by the way. I said, the Lord said to my Lord, you are my son. And no, that's Psalm 2. Yeah. But it's a repeated refrain we find not only in the Psalter, but also through the prophets. Think of Isaiah. The whole scope of Isaiah. What is Isaiah's vision? What does it begin with in chapter 6? Where he sees the Lord himself seated high on the throne. Chapter 7, it is this, this king who is uh, born of a virgin. Chapter 9 and chapter 11, who the, the, the government will stand upon his shoulders and he will be the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace, the one who rules the nations. Chapter 53, chapter 40 is the great servant of the Lord, the, the beloved possession of the Father's eye, the one who will bear the sins of many and make intercession for the transgressors. He is the great and conquering king upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests, who brings salvation to the nations, who causes the eyes of the blind to see, who causes the deaf to hear, who causes the lame to leap for joy. The one who brings liberty to the captives by the proclamation of good news. He is the one who returns, Isaiah 66, and shatters the reign of the wicked. This very thing that we see uh, in Daniel chapter 7, what, what David was getting at last week, when we look at that, it's a great promise of, of the Son of Man who comes to claim an everlasting throne. We see a final turn where now the psalmist, in light of this reoriented view of the grand perspective as the forces have assembled around the nations, the psalmist says, I, I, I've seen this from a different angle. And now I've got to urge a warning to you, O nations who have gathered against the people of God. It's the great exhortation to fear the Lord and to pay homage to the Son. What is required of Israel is also required of the nations. Submission to the Lord's Messiah. Will you serve the Lord? Will you fear his name? It is a package deal. You cannot serve the Lord and yet reject his son. The son reflects the very heart of the father. He is the image bearer par excellence. And so the psalmist gives a call to repentance in light of the coming judgment. Just, is, just as the son is the executor of judgment on the last day, so too is the son the executor of mercy. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That the blessing and the curse hinges on whether or not you submit to the son or whether or not you meditate upon vanity in seeking to overthrow his rule. 
that to submit to the Son, that is the only way of salvation from the coming wrath that will soon befall the nations. So what first began in this psalm with dark undertones, the nations circling together around Israel, now turns into a coronation hymn extolling the King of Kings and a giving of a warning to the nations to watch out. Just as Psalm 1 began with a blessing upon those who spurn the wicked and meditate upon the Lord's instruction, now Psalm 2 pronounces a blessing upon all those who set their hope on the Lord's anointed King. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. As I said, this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's a fully historical psalm where the psalmist, under inspiration of the Spirit, recounts an event where the nations have gathered together. And yet it forms a prism, it forms a lens through which we are to understand the coming work of Christ. Just as the Lord had promised to David, I will put you on the throne and one of your sons will sit on that throne forever, indicating that there will be a son who does not die, a son who holds the power of resurrection life. We find that the fulfillment of this grand promise is found not in David himself, but in David's greater son. It's the very question Jesus poses the Pharisees just days before he is crucified. How is it that David, under inspiration of the Spirit, speak in such a way as it is in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. You think of Christ's birth, Christ's baptism, Christ's transfiguration. In all three instances, you hear the voice of the Father boom from heaven saying what? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. To speak of Christ as the Son of God is to attest to his kingship, that he is the rightful heir to the messianic throne. That Christ, though he is the Son from all eternity past, is now born of David's line and comes to inherit the throne that has been promised him from eternity. Christ enters into a new estate in a state of exaltation whereby his uh, resurrection from the dead, he comes to claim not a sliver of land in Palestine, but he ascends to heaven to, to be seated at the heavenly throne where he rules now and cannot be overthrown. He will not be uh, impeached. He will not be voted out of office. Christ reigns now. It's not simply a future hope that we have Hebrews chapter 1, in previous times, in a variety of ways, God spoke to our fathers uh, by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the one who is appointed to be the heir of all things, the one who by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension on high has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's already happened. Christ reigns. So the historical situation of Psalm 2 provides this particular prism through which we are to interpret Christ's death and resurrection. Christ's ascension into heaven is his coronation day. It is his great crowning achievement. He is the Son of God raised in power, as Paul says in Romans 1, 3. 
Think of how this shapes the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4 as the church is praying. They invoke the name of Jesus and refer to him as that anointed servant against whom, and I quote, Herod Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, set up against him. Echoing that same language of Psalm chapter 2, where the nations have conspired against Israel's true king. You have Pilate, governor of the Romans, or Palestine at least, uh, uh, as a puppet of Rome. You have Herod for Judea. You have the nations having gathered together in a conspiracy against the true king of Israel. Why is it that the, the, the gospel of Matthew begins uh, with a genealogical record tracing Jesus' lineage through the line of Abraham and David to show that he is, in fact, the rightful heir to the throne that had been vacated for centuries? It's the great story of the return of the king. is the story of the gospel according to Matthew Acts chapter 13, Paul's resurrection, or Christ, or Paul speaks of Christ's resurrection as a divine begetting. That Christ's resurrection marks his claim to the throne, and Paul, in fact, cites Psalm 2 as proof. When Christ ascended on high, Hebrews tells us, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So what are we to make of all this? It's a rather dense psalm, as, as short and compact as it is. I think it's a psalm that's so thoroughly Christ-centered, I, it seems almost impossible not to see Christ in this psalm. It's a song of triumph. It's a song of coronation. That's why we began singing this evening, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Echoing the very thing that we see here in Psalm 2. But it is also for the people of God a psalm of hope. Because it brings into focus the triumph of Christ, even against the backdrop of the rage of the nations. It's a psalm that gives us hope in the midst of trial. So the psalmist is looking around him as the forces of evil are gathered around going, why are the nations raging? Why have they taken counsel together? He's asking in the midst of battle. And yet his perspective is turned upside down as he now sees the true perspective for what it is. Though the nations rage, they are already subject to Christ. And they're really just trying to burst the bonds to which they have been subjected Calvin makes this really beautiful statement in his commentary on the Psalms where he says this, he says, let us know that if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, that it is for this reason, that now is the time of God's laughter. That the period between the first and second coming of Christ is summed up in this way, all of Christ's enemies being made his footstool. That though we look and we see the nations raging, people uh, seeking to overthrow Christ's church worldwide, Though the church may groan under the weight of affliction and sorrow and great tribulation, here we find the Lord's response that the Lord is not wringing his hands, fretting over what will happen next. The people may groan under the weight of the wickedness of the age, but the Lord's response to such wickedness is his laughter. As he holds his enemies in derision, as he laughs not at our own sorrows and sighings, 
but rather he laughs because he knows that the meditations and the schemes and the plans of the wicked are but futile gestures. Why do they plot in vain? Why do they waste their time? Why do they expend all of their efforts seeking something that will never come to pass? Their end is as dust in the wind. Doesn't matter how firmly entrenched these forces appear, whether it be the Kremlin or Beijing or Babylon, Rome, Washington, D.C., or even Salem, Oregon. See, in one sense, this is a thoroughly political psalm. And the psalm is not advocating the great triumph of America. It's not speaking of the triumph of the Roman Empire. It's not speaking of the triumph of the Russian Tsar. But rather, it speaks of a greater kingdom. A kingdom that will outstrip every kingdom of this age. I'm thankful for, uh, there's much that we have in this nation to be thankful for, but we recognize that uh, the, the, the Republic the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is visibly manifested in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a heavenly kingdom. At the end of the day, every Christian is a monarchist because we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom where we have not a president but a king, and that king is not Caesar. That king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are called to be good citizens in our earthly kingdoms and vocations, to be sure. But our primary passport and visa resides elsewhere. Psalm 2 reminds us that this is the time of the Lord's laughter. The nations may surround the church Yet in all of its sound and in all of its fury, theirs is a tale signifying nothing. And so there are two ways to go. Will you continue to rage against Christ's rule as he reigns now from on high? Or will you pay homage to the Son and find blessedness and refuge in him? What we find is that this psalm sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter, as the rest of the Psalms begin to tease out the implications of the reign of the King of Zion, even as circumstances around us seem like it is quite the contrary. But cheer up, because this is the time of the Lord's laughter. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would set our sights on Christ, the great King of the nations, as you have given us to be an inheritance. We ask that you would continue to claim and reclaim the citizens here of the valley for the kingdom of Christ, that you would draw them in to make them citizens of a heavenly kingdom and reconcile them by your grace, lest they be confronted with the coming wrath be found on the last day. We ask that you make this church an outpost of grace, that it would be a ministry whereby people hear of the great declaration of amnesty and pardon to sinners as we await the triumph of our King. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.